when you start to see the cliff edge of burnout, start walking backwards. Like because once you once you fall off it, it's a long way back up. It's mm. really hard to get yourself back on your feet. And and um, but a lot of us don't realise that we're at the cliff edge until we do fall off it. You know, and it's, and it's one of those things. I, I, there was a few warning signs for burnout for me that I, I didn't I wasn't aware of at the time. How do you get ten thousand people to take a step to the left? What's behind? the relentless mindset of a world champion. Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are some of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast where the ordinary don't belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today spent 25 years as a detective in the New South Wales Police Force investigating, confronting and dismantling the world of high-risk law enforcement. A world where you're up close and personal with drugs, outlaw motorcycle gangs and homicides is not only confronting, it slowly wears you down through repeated exposure to high high levels of stress, workloads, occupational burnout, depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Two and a half decades on the front line of protecting human beings from the dark side of humanity resulted in our guest exiting from the police force in 2015 due to his own personal battle with workplace psychological injury. Since 2015, he has really dedicated his life to helping people improve their mental health through being a Black Dog Institute mental health education presenter, mentor for the New South Wales Police Legacy Program, Backup for Life, and founder of Mentality Plus. I have the privilege of sitting down and sharing with you an incredible human being who is a mental health, well-being, and resilience trainer and speaker, has educated over 30,000 people through mental health advocacy, and is the recent author of a raw and unflinchingly honest autobiography, The Cop Who Fell to Earth. Craig Simple. Craig, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Craig. Beautiful. Now, look, you, we talk about you being a police officer in New South Wales, uh, but I'm curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream as you raced around the playgrounds uh, at school? Yeah, look, it was my, my dream as a, as a young fellow was nowhere near where, where I ended up. It was, uh, I grew up in Ballantyne, which is around the corner where I live now in Lake Macquarie. Um, brought up in a quite a political family. My my pop, who was my role model in my life, he was president of the Ironworkers Union back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And so we had a lot of exposure to politics. But I grew up around, you know, our house backed on some beautiful bushland, uh, going all the way down to the Lake Foreshore. And, and I spent my, all my childhood with my brother and a couple of neighborhood friends fighting wars in the bush and riding on push bikes and falling off them and, and doing all this and fishing, all that sort of awesome stuff. And because I had such a love for the water, for for the ocean, 
I and and for the environment, I I, I wanted to become a marine biologist. That was my dream uh, going through school. But um, don't know if it was a lack of academic ability or a lack of effort or both. And there was no chance of me ever becoming a marine biologist. So, um, so yeah, I, I sort of a pop as I was growing older. He started recommending thinking about the police force. Um, and look, I, I certainly yeah. didn't consider myself being really tough as, as a young fellow. I was tall and, and, and fit, but I wasn't someone who, you know, even being bullied at school or anything, I never fought back. I wasn't one of those sort of guys. My brother was more that, that way. Um, but, but then, so I, I did give it some thought and then I had uh, a girlfriend in high school, uh, whose brother-in-law was a, a detective and, and when I turned 18, he started taking me out for a few drinks with his workmates and, and sitting around listening to those guys talk about the job, as, as yeah. we call it. Um, but like, you know, any yeah, doubt that yeah. I ever had about joining the police force was extinguished at that point because yeah. I just thought, what a life these guys are having. Uh, and I wanted a piece of it. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, the the life, it's, it's obviously changing every single day. It is intense in certain aspects but you talked about there being you know maybe not the most confident kid or, or not the most strongest kid or not the person that would be confronting so how did you find when you went into the police force did you have to shift shift your mindset a lot or did it really support you that you were a little bit more cautious in a way or, or weren't that person that was gonna take the first step forward yeah when, when i joined i mean the first place they sent me to was in the city of sydney a place called redfern there was a lot of problems at Redfern back in in eighties, and it wasn't the place if you if you had too much of um, too much caution. I don't think you'd survive it. Um, but I don't know. I, I, like I was, I think I was only quiet through those young years of my life because I'd never really been like pushed and, and never really had my boundaries tested before. And and once I, I jumped into that environment, um, I think because I was given that opportunity to really push my boundaries and 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 to, and and to actually see what I was capable of that's when my whole world just opened up in front of me it was not not only did I find that I was I was actually capable of um, at times having to use violence to to bring bad people in like when when it was necessary but um, but I was actually like good at the whole scope. As good, I was good at negotiating. Okay. I was good at communication, and when it became physical, I was I was good with that too. So yeah. it's sort of I would never have had the opportunity to know what I was actually capable of if I hadn't have been put into into that job. And I think it was one of the best things about law enforcement for me is that it always gave me that opportunity to see um, my potential and and to um, I don't know for, for personal and professional growth. It was just unbelievable. It's kind of interesting just to, you talked about boundaries there and, and I'm kind of thinking there, there are many people in this world who, who need someone putting the boundaries in place for them and because they, they keep searching, right? Like until someone puts a, a brick wall or, or puts a road sign in place, you literally just keep going. Whereas other people that need to be pushed outside their boundaries and that, that's, that's a fascinating insight for you as well, like that you, you know, that you hadn't really been challenged or tested in a way was that more physically or mentally or a bit of both bit of both for sure it was um look and then and the I, I guess for me violence wasn't something that came naturally to me i was yeah. i was i don't want to sound too cliche here but i was more of a lover than a fighter in all honesty as a, as a young fella but 
Um, so I always did have a bit of a softer side to me. Um, but I don't know. It's just, I, I think part of it was I, I really got hooked on adrenaline uh, mm. very early in my career. The, just the excitement of the, the police work I was doing. And, and it wasn't just yeah, the violence know. side of things either. It was just there was so much other excitement that we'd been exposed to with you know, high-speed car chases and and, um, and, lots of, and even the work itself, going out in plain clothes and doing street-level drug drug operations, uh, undercover stuff. Um, even in my first year of policing, you know, with no training in, in that field, and it was just so exciting. I, I became so addicted to the to the thrill of it. It was, mm, yeah. uh, I, I loved it so much, Craig, that when, when I had my days off from work, as much as I loved coming back and seeing all my old school friends and, and knocking around on weekends, I honestly didn't want to have days off. I loved my work so much. I didn't want any time away from it. Yeah, wow. It, it's uh, it's kind of like a it's it's kind of like a drug, right? When <laughs> in a way, I mean, it, it's somewhat healthy, but maybe not. It, like sometimes we think of things like that as a healthy drug. You know, you're passionate about making a difference and and being able to get there to, to solve a problem or or dissipate something. And um, but that but that obsession sometimes, that addiction sometimes, can actually become a negative long term. Certainly did for me down the track, um, but a, a part of that addiction too to my my, my job was the camaraderie. I, I mean, mm. we the bonds that we we uh, that we made between each other. Um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why Red Fan for me in those first five years of my career was was so pivotal because I always found yeah. that the, the places I work with the, the greatest challenge and adversity, the bonds between each other became stronger um, because we we're in it together. Um, and, and so I, I fell in love with that aspect of it as well. It's like a massive, big family, and I was—I love my family in, in the police force. So when you look back to when you're in training, were they? Did they prepare you for? Uh, prepare you for that, like that you're going to get excited and and how to kind of uh, temper that at certain times because you know you can get a bit gung shy when you start to get a bit confident and you and you're chasing that through. A totally different culture back then um, when we joined there was no, there was none of that sort of mental uh, um, preparedness at all um, and and even still today there's there's not enough focus on preparing cops and educating them about um, you know the, about stress in general about the whole fight flight response about adrenal adrenaline and cortisol all that all the stuff they really need to know is still not enough of it but back then we had none and and our, our training back in those days too was only 12 weeks. It was 12 weeks of just what your basics you needed to know. And then they gave me a gun and a badge and sent me out on the street. But the training's a lot more in, you know, intense and, and a lot more uh, longer duration now. But, you know, we, we basically learned our trade when we got out on the street because whatever we learned at the academy, um, that was the right way to do things. But the, you get out there on the street and, and you learn a whole different way of doing things as well. So um, because, you know, the demands are totally different. Oh, street smart is yeah. is um, um, uh, so important, you know, in those situations, right? You can't just rely on a textbook and and kind of, uh, you know, here's the procedure. It's like, well, the things are happening at light speed and you have to, yes, you need that preparedness, you need exposure, et cetera, to make better informed instinctual decisions in a way. You know, the intuition really kicks in when things are moving at a fast pace. It's it's not like making decision on how much budget we're going to spend next year or uh, or how many clients we chase. Like it, this is happening at light speed and 
So, so how do you, you know, in those situations, you talked about the collaboration, the camaraderie before. When you're young, when you're in the police force and you've got to make decisions really, really quick and you've got to rely on your gut a lot in the way, uh, along the way, as well as a bit of um, intellect of thinking about what happens, how much support was there from the people around you? They, would they guide you through those situations or you're kind of left to kind of figure a lot of it out on the go? No, I mean, at the start for the first, I think it was about 12 weeks, about three, three months, uh, we were assigned a buddy trainer. And, and so that was a, a cop who, who's a field trainer in the, in the police force who got some experience. And and I was really lucky because, it, I mean, the, the police force I joined, um, I mean, you probably heard and, and lots of people would have heard that we've had a Royal Commission into police corruption back in the 90s. Um, we, we had a, our, our culture in the police force back then was really loose, a huge drinking culture and lots of other stuff was going on as well. And uh, it definitely wasn't a professional organisation back then. Um it, but but I was really lucky. My my buddy trainer who I got straight out of the academy was someone who had for the time really strong ethics and integrity, and he was methodical in the way he did his job, and he was very professional. and 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 Matt um, like taught me how to do the job the right way the first, at, at the start, and which was important for me because yeah, at least I got that really good grounding. And then for for where I went from there, that was going to be up to me and. And a part of that was building my own brand and my own, yeah, character, um, professional character, and and I guess I built that from working then with a whole heap of other senior police over different times, and 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 I, I would sort of see the right way and the wrong way to do things, mm. and and so I sort of, I, you know, if, if there was one bloke who, or there wasn't many women in the police force back then, there was a few, but whoever, whoever I was working with, if I if I liked something or the way they did something, I, I would pull that in, and that would become part of part of my brand. And then, if I didn't like the way some other person did something, well, that's you know, try not to do that. So, I, I don't know. It was really, really good for developing developing my own character, which I then took forward through the rest of the police force as well. It's interesting. You're know, talking about mindset and even well being, and we're talking about that support network around you. I don't think it matters too much what industry it is. I mean, many still fail, um, from my understanding, to really prepare people for what they're about to encounter, whether that's you know into a leadership role, whether that's a coaching role, whether that's into the police force, whatever it may be. When you step into something, yeah, they might give you some tactics. They might give you some skills. But very rarely do they give you that support around emotionally, um, even physically from an energy management point of view, how to really prepare yourself for what's coming up and to be able to uh, be proactive around things rather than waiting till we have to be reactive because something's gone wrong. Yeah, exactly. Well, we didn't have any of that. I mean, even back in those as those early days for me, we, we didn't have any psychological services. There was no employee assistance programs or anything like that. It was Everything was sorted out over a beer. And that's why we had such a big drinking culture, you know. It was yeah. just we had each other's backs, and 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 after something exciting or something, um, you know, something horrible or tragic or really traumatic happened, we would deal with it by going for a drink together after yeah. after work. And that even to itself, even though the the drinking side of our culture was unhealthy, um, it did serve its purpose yeah. back then, and we sort of had a, a really good social cohesion outside of work as as well i think that 
I don't know. I mean, the, the, the culture's changed a lot in the police force now. There's there's nowhere near that's <laughs> that level of drinking. And, and um, I mean, after the Royal Commission, a lot of that was changed, But and, 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 and it needed yeah. to be. But you also you got to put something, you're going to take that social aspect out. You need to put something in that's going to replace that too. And I've noticed that, in, you know, it's not just a police force. I've noticed that in, in so many industries that I, I travel out to and work with now, there's just not enough emphasis put on doing a little bit of social work outside of your workplace so you get to know each other a little bit better yeah and i, I find i i, I saw, in the, in my experience in the police force i probably saw an escalation in interpersonal conflict yeah. at work once that social aspect of the police force was gone because people only got to know each other at work and and they never really got to know each other outside of work and see that the person that they might lock horns with all the time at work has actually got so many similarities to them and um, you know, it's got the same problems, same challenges. Um, so yeah, and I, and I find that in a lot of workplaces now that mm. sort of we backed off on that side of things. And and humans are really tribal, and we're very social. Yeah, and it's it's important to have that that aspect to it as well. It's a really good pickup, and you know, I was fortunate to be part of a a New Zealand record, if not potentially a world record, of two hundred and seventy two games unbeaten streak in sport with field hockey. And, you know, it was 16 years, we didn't lose a game. And that actually won, f- like, so I never lost one because I was the first five years, but they lost the final the year before. But previous to that, they hadn't lost a game for five years as well. And when, you know, and at the moment, I'm going back to interview people and, and really trying to unpack what was so amazing about that. And one of the big things that is really shining through, um, and, and we don't see this when people talk about high-performing teams, right? We don't see this, is that social component. And it wasn't a day where field hockey used to have multiple grass pitches. Everyone used to play at the same time. You'd be at the club rooms, uh, to be quite honest, should I say this on air? Yes, I will. Um, there were even times when the men's and women's would play at the same time. It'd be so cold, everyone would shower together, right? Just Probably can't do that now. Um, <laughs> and and the social component was phenomenal. And now there's t- uh, where we have artificial turf where they play you know, nearly 24-7 on the damn thing. It took away that social connection and and obviously the changing in drinking cultures has also changed a lot as well um but we when i look at high performing companies high performing teams they do have a quite a big social um component to the way they do things and they do step outside from the normal bus- way of business working and they find those spaces to connect with each other and so i think it's a really good uh, important point that you bring up and when we think about now where we've got teams that are working remotely or hybrid, this is a real challenge to try and keep that social component going. Um, my team is fully remote uh, and has been from day one, but I still find the time when I fly around the world and even if I'm there to go meet a potential client or whatever it may be, I will try and organize a coffee or or dinner or some drinks with certain people, like the people that are nearby just to kind of continue to build where we can. And it's impossible to bring everyone together from around the world, but in those pockets, to just try and keep that going. And I find that so important if we don't, you kind of lose that that fully understanding of people. And then as you say, sometimes we just react and or we respond in a way, not really knowing the full story, so to speak. Yeah, yeah uh, totally agree. And even what you're talking about there about... Um, you know, learning from each other as well. And, and I think, th- I mean, th- th- I, this has got a whole heap of conversation going about yeah. uh, working from home uh, these days. And 
and how that's going to affect the next generation of leaders because if we're not sort of working in like close to each other and I just gave examples of how it you know, took on all these awful, uh, aw- awesome strengths from a lot of people that I, that I work with. You know, if, you, if you're not having that interaction, I think it's going to be very difficult. Mm. This is, you know, all this talk about four-day working week and even a three-day working week I'm hearing from some people. Uh, a lot of the things they're putting in place are very short-term, productive, maybe some short-term performance, long-term, it actually has a reverse effect and they don't realize what's actually going to happen because if you shorten meetings and, and it's just purely on, we've got an agenda, that's it, and you go and and you condense the amount of work you're doing into a short period of time, you're going to lose this total social um, connection that is required to build high-performing teams, to have to build proper connections as a leader, to make sure you're having those right conversations, to even know what's going on in, in their own worlds and, and pick up on cues when mental health may not be right or, or when they're facing other challenges in their life. You, you may not pick up on those cues because you're just not getting in front of those people at the right time in the right setting to allow those conversations to happen. And as leaders, you play a bigger role than just the job you have to do. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, um, I mean, the last half of my career was spent in, in leadership roles, mainly middle management, which was, um, oh, probably the best years of my life. It was, but it was a big part of that. It's like bring people on, on a ride with you. And, mm. um, and, and it's pretty hard to do that if you're not spending time with them and, and, um, and, and nurturing them too. I mean, even for me as a leader, it wasn't just as a leader in, in, in so far as my rank, it was also in so far as my role as a mentor and coach to those, those people, particularly younger cops. And, you know, I, I trained probably about 40 or 50 future detectives through, throughout my, um, the particular last probably seven or eight years of my career. And, and it was like leaving a legacy, like having, bringing those people through, training them up, getting them to the point where they became qualified detectives like me. It was probably some of the, the most proud yeah. moments of my career was was when those guys went out and became qualified detectives like me. And yeah. it, it was such an important thing. I, I don't know. Okay. It's, it's, it is going to cause some difficulties for a lot of businesses moving forward with, with the working from home. Uh, depends on the structure and the nature of the work and, and the industry you're in, I guess. But... Um, but I think there's that we need to be together so much, and and I, and I think COVID sort of highlighted that for a lot of people. I mean, some people enjoyed that that isolation. Um, yeah. It depends on your personality, yeah. but but others just craved craved that social connection. And yeah, we I've, I've worked collaboratively with a, a couple of guys who run leadership training. Uh, they're ex cops as well, and we put a few programs together when it was. Um, time to, for people to come back to the office and, and particularly in the, public sector the, the areas, area. they're really having yeah. trouble and you sort of go yeah. and, and, and we run these programs and, and just to get people back into the workplace to do a one day training session. And I yeah. talked a lot about gratitude at the end of the day and, yeah. and a lot of these, they, these guys, when I ask them one thing to be grateful for for COVID, okay. some of them would say, like, I just realized today how yeah. much I need yeah. that social yeah. connection and my friendships with, at work yeah. and the fun and the laughter and, and, and that sort of thing because they had two years without it, they became become really used to that isolation, which is not necessarily really good for us. We're not, not actually built for that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm i a deep introvert. 
and so I love my quiet space. I, I love, you know, I grew up on a farm, the nearest neighbor was a mile away, so to speak. <laughs> but I'm also very socially competent. And so I was always in settings where I'd play sport, I'd be in teams, etc. And, you know, even now, yes, I'm working from home and do a lot from here, but I find those times to really be able to engage and connect with people. And I think that's so important. Well, so, and, and the connection means so many things too. I mean, like I, I go out and meet thousands of people every year with the work I'm doing, but but there's a difference. Like it's, I, I meet them and, mm. and I'm, I'll work with them, but we don't really have that solid bond. Yeah. You know, you don't yeah. really develop a real close relationship with them. So isolation yeah. can, yeah. even though I'm yeah. meeting yeah. thousands yeah. of people, I'm still quite isolated in, in yeah. the world that I'm, I'm living. So it's important for me when I come home that I've got some really good uh, friends and social networks at home that I can go out and, and because I need that. So it's, it's one of those things that I'm really mindful of. Yeah, it's good. We're going to go back into into your work in a way like you you know you talked about the excitement of being um, yeah, your your previous career not what you're currently doing uh, you talked about the excitement and the thrill and and the adrenaline rush of being in these situations but you're also getting repeated exposures to you know some things that are probably not so healthy for us to see on a regular basis. And so, did you, how you know in your twenty-five year career was there a point where you started to really notice that maybe this is having a greater effect on me, um, the situations that I'm in and the things that I'm seeing? Yeah, look, there's there's a couple of different landmarks in, in that. I mean, probably the first one uh, was about ten years into my career. My my brother followed me into the police force. My younger brother and and. Yeah. Um, and without getting into all the details, I mean, he, he and a, his workmate um, tried to affect an off-duty arrest on a, someone who was trying to sell them drugs one night, and they both got stabbed. Um, so my brother was lucky to live, and um, and his workmate died on the street. And I was already doing drug work back then, and I was in a drug squad down in a regional area in New South Wales. And I don't know, it was probably the first, I always had a... A, a real passion for drug work but it, it became a sort of unhealthy obsession after that because it got personal and yeah. and so i became really fixated and manic the way i was doing my job i just wanted to i knew i couldn't do anything about the the, the guy who hurt my brother but because he was already in jail um mm. but i knew i could go out and, and maybe um get some satisfaction from going out and just trying to lock up as many drug dealers as i possibly could so you know, I, I, it's probably the first time I started to really push the boundaries yeah. when it came to my, my stress tolerance. And, yeah. um, and, and, but the good thing was back then I had a, enough self-awareness to know yeah. after a couple of years of doing this, that something's not right. And yeah. I took a little spell back in yeah. uniform for a few months just to, yeah. to, to get away and, and acted as a circuit breaker. But then I moved up to the North coast a few years later and, yeah. and, um, Look, I was surrounded by bikies and, and other stuff up there and, and it was a pretty pretty full-on environment. But I had to, I had one homicide in particular that was pretty brutal and I didn't actually understand. This is the thing about education with mental health. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. Um, if you don't know what to look for, the signs and symptoms, the risk factors, then you're not going to pick it up in not only you but the people around you. So we were flying blind and there was one one homicide that I, I, it was a dangerous situation. I, I was basically, at the time, I felt there was a life-threatening situation, a firearm out and, and I, I went into this this house, which was a scene of a, a murder and um, basically I was just so pumped on adrenaline at that time that adrenaline, I didn't understand at the time, but it really 
as, as well as getting you combat ready physically, it also heightens all your, all your sensory experiences. And, and so, you know, everything I saw in that house, everything I heard, everything I could smell, taste in the air, they, they've got, because they were so heightened, those experiences, sort of burning deep what I was experiencing in that house in the moment. Scrambled the way my brain processed all, all those experiences and, and later caused post-traumatic stress disorder. And I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, but that, but that, that experience ended up causing me a, a lot of dramas. And then we worked on that murder for about four weeks and eventually got the, the, the guy who did it, charge him. That was all good. And a couple of days after we cleared the murder, uh, we had our detective's Christmas party. And unfortunately, one of our local bikey gangs had got early warning of it and they brought some, uh, some of their people in from interstate and they came and crashed the, the, the Christmas party and, and attacked it. We had wives and girlfriends there and I got glassed and a, and a few other people got pretty seriously hurt. And, and then, um, and then a couple of weeks after that, I started having really bad nightmares about, about my work and it made me about that murder. And I, I reckon that was probably the biggest red flag for me that something wasn't right when I started having these nightmares and. I guess, you know, yeah. I, I had a real fear back then that if I told anyone about this, that my career would be over. And mm -hmm. and, um, and I was actually wrong in, in that assumption, but it was just because I'd seen other up. cops declare mental health problems and saw them exit yeah. stage left. Yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't want that happen to me. So, yeah. you know, I, and it's one of the reasons I do so many lived experience talks now is to try to increase in this workplace all over the country, not just emergency services, but try to increase that um, the levels of, of help seeking, particularly at the earliest possible um, warning signs, because it definitely makes a difference in outcomes. That I did, and I, and, and I guess we all fall back on our own coping strategies if we don't go and get the professional help that we need. And 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 so my my two big ones were the alcohol abuse. Like I, I drank a lot to try to numb me out and and for some escape, but. My biggest coping strategy, in all honesty, was actually my work, and 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 I've seen this with with, and you would have seen this with high performers as well in in the corporate world and others where, you know, if they're struggling, we'll just come in and we'll try to outrun it. We'll try to bury ourselves in our work. We don't have to confront things if we're busy doing other things, and that was a big thing for me. I mean, my sort of work that I was doing in the cops, I could plug myself in the adrenaline socket of law enforcement, and all my problems go away, and it yeah. was. You know, it was just fully focused and wired into that, that work. But, mate, unfortunately, with the, the and, and a lot of it was the, the work that I'd set myself, you know, pick my targets to, to work on, bikies, drug dealers, murderers, whatever. And and I'd, I'd, I'd work the job through and, and hunt them down over a period of time and we get we get our result and I'd sort of get that big dopamine hit from the from the reward. and then But then I'd need another one. And then, then I'd need another one. The next one would need to be bigger. So I was really manic in the way I was doing my job and fully, fully adrenaline addicted. But, you know, everything goes up, it's got to come down. Yeah. And, and everyone's got different tolerances for stress. Um, but I pushed pretty hard for about eight or nine years, living on somewhere between two or five hours sleep a night. Um, but just with this massive amount of, yeah. you know, putting myself in dangerous yeah. situations on a constant basis, being under massive work demands <laughs> with limited resources. Yeah, you know, over a period of time, you know, it's, it's, it just burnt me out. And I had no idea about burnout, didn't understand it back then. But even though I had PTSD for eight or nine years, truly, what really brought me undone was the burnout. And I think 
a lot more people are starting to become aware yeah. of, 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 the, of the problem with burnout in, in, in our workplaces um, around the country now, which is good. But we probably still need a little bit more education and awareness of it. But basically, look, at the end of the day, all that adrenaline and cortisol was continually flooding my system. It became neurotoxic and led to burnout. And then yeah. then I had a, a long battle with depression, and that was the, the thing that really floored me. Mm. The what, what I know coming from sport where uh, in sport, you know, when you get recovery wrong, you can't run as fast, can't run as long, you, your reactions get slower, uh, you make mistakes. It's super clear, like it's really defined. In the corporate world though, unless you have a very physically demanding job um, or you have a catastrophic event, in most cases, you don't know your energy is declining. You don't know that recovery is not enough. It just, the body just keeps adapting. It's very, very clever. And so in most cases, right, we, we find it keeps declining. Everyone, everyone thinks they're kind of okay. Yeah, I'm still good. I'm not sick here, whatever. Um, I can handle this. And then you hit Christmas time, right? You have a couple of days off. And your body goes, hey, um, this is good. I'm going to punish you now because you haven't been doing enough of this. So I'm going to make you sick. And so it, it is really challenging because those signs are so subtle and very, very subtle. And so I think there needs to be, you know, we we're talking about before, what is that preparedness to the emotional, the um, the workload you're about to take on in, the, in, in your corporate life or whatever you choose to do. There's not enough education in that space because from a, getting to a burnout phase it's all about energy management but if you don't know how to proactively put that in place from a young age then you know you and, and you're a high achiever you're someone that really likes to go after things then you you're highly likely to fall into that trap at some point and if you don't have if either you're not aware of it or someone else is not aware of it you're going to end up in a big hole yeah oh, look, that's a really good way to put it and, and um i mean i, I heard it of, of a psychologist recently who, who talks about burnout and like if you when you start to see the cliff edge of burnout start walking backwards like because once you once you fall off it it's a long way back up it's mm. really hard to get yourself back on your feet and and um but a lot of us don't realize that we're at the cliff edge until we do fall off it you know and it's, and it's one of those things i, I there was a few warning signs for burnout for me that I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of yeah. at the time. But, but when the last job eventually pushed me over the edge, it was a really, really? The, probably the biggest investigation around my whole career. Really? Eighteen months working on one bikey gang, and there was so much involved in it. It would take too long to get into in, into here. But towards the end of that job, and I was commanding that investigation, and I didn't have any downtime. Even on my days off, I was working because I was. I had people in the field twenty four seven, always bringing me for decisions to be made. The job was really fluid, so we had to constantly adapt. And but towards the end of the job, things that I knew needed to be done, you know, I was trying to find ways to let's just not worry about that. Let's just find a way to wind this job up now, which was so out of character for me. It was I would normally want to push it right to the very end. Um, but I started looking at, I actually started looking at it from a point of view. That I'm just so tired now. I just I don't I actually don't want to take it that next level. I don't I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Even my, the, some of the younger detectives who were had plenty of energy left, they were saying, "Come on, mate, we're going to do this." And and that was probably the biggest warning sign for me when I started to 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 not enjoy the things that used to used to just energize me, and make me feel so good and positive. 
when 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 I when I lost that enjoyment for it, that was probably the biggest warning sign. But I didn't. I just kept plowing yeah, through, yeah, and yeah. and that was probably the point where I should have backed off. But I but I kept on going, and, and I did push myself until I until I fell off that cliff edge. And um and and look, at that end of my career, and and so at the end of the day, if I actually got got help all those years earlier when, when I first started having, having nightmares, yeah, I'd still be in that job um, now. But I didn't. I just kept pushing through and. And, and went a little bit too hard, and I, th- I guess the yeah. lesson I've learned from that, Craig, is that you know, when I was at the police academy, we were taught how to yeah. do high speed driving, and as an eighteen year old, that was pretty exciting. And I, but I remember one of the instructors said to us, he said, "Look, guys, when you, when you're doing a high speed chase or, or some other urgent uh, driving job, never yeah. drive at ten tenths of your driving ability, because if you're driving at ten tenths of your driving ability and something unexpected happens." That'll then you've got nothing left to navigate it. Yeah. So he said, drive at eight tenths of your ability, so you've got a two tenth buffer. And it's funny how, yeah. you know, you'd probably be the same where you remember some things people said at different stages of your life. And yeah. I sort of, I, I, I line that with stress now. Yeah. Like if you're running at 10 tenths of your stress capacity, and I was, lots of people can, and we do, and we, we, we manage okay, we love it. But what if something, if something unexpected happens yeah. and you've got no buffer? to navigate it so stress needs to be kept at eight tenths or below i believe uh for most of the time it's good for us in in, in when we need it but so for me like you know that last investigation i had that i was running at 10 tenths of my stress capacity but then my father-in-law died so i had a tragedy in my family which i was now dealing with as well and all of these things just combined to push me over that edge yeah um it's i always say that you know burnout is a choice um, one burnout that is a choice that is really, really hard to kind of avoid is if you're working full time and you're a new parent. <laughs> yeah, so well, you know all like, about that now. Yeah, yeah, so you made the choice, but then it's yeah. it's you know once you're in there though, it's really, really difficult to you know because we we need to procreate, right? We need to keep the, the human race going, but it's also yeah a real challenge. And you know when you're talking about running at 10 tenths at 100% at full capacity, you know, when you're running a global business and you've got a, a young baby, you're working from home, you're working 100% capacity and then something happens, right? And I've had a couple of these this year. Well, something happens, man. You got, you just like, you you don't know where to go. You don't know what to do. You, you're trying to shove something in there when there is no space to shove it in. It's it's like trying to fill the, the trash can a little bit more than it should have. Uh, and then things start kind of littering along the street because you can't keep up. Your your mind starts to go. You you can't think straight. You're not as productive anymore. You start getting a short temper. That's Everything it. kicks in, which is unhealthy. And sometimes, you know, I, I noticed this year. I'm like, I, I I'm aware of this stuff happening, but I don't know what what else there is to do. I don't know what the choice is. And so I think having and I'm someone who comes from a high performance background and deals with energy and management and and kind of the mental space at times as well it's it's hard in certain situations in life um so from your perspective what what are the kind of key things people need to look out for uh to prevent burnout from occurring um number one is have a well-being game plan so yeah. that's it's a really important thing is to rather than wait till you're broken like yeah. i did to learn strategies to to help um you know do, to live with stress and, and and for the impact of it is 
is actually be proactive and, and have all those those sort of strategies in place now while, while you're actually well. And a lot of the strategies that um, that I've learned through recovery, like particular um, meditation and mindfulness, uh, you know, I, this sort of stuff's never taught in, in the police force. And it's such a big thing, particularly when it comes to decompressing from, from the, from particularly if you're in a job that's, or have a role that's high pressure and you're under the pump all the time, and you don't have to be a cop to experience this. Lots of people can. I mean, you go home from work and you're still pumped from from all the pressure you've been under work, and then kids are jumping all over you and they yeah. want to play with you and all those sort of things. Sometimes oh. it can be a bit too much, and you and you need that time to decompress before yeah. you go into back to domestic life. Um, so yeah. for things like learning meditation and mindfulness, I, I never did any of that in the police force, but I learned it when I was out. It was a big part of my recovery, and it's still something that I use a lot now. Which is important. Exercise is very important too. I mean, you you know the benefits of exercise, um, but but not just for your physical, but for your mental health. It's but but exercise for me while I was in the police force that became a bit of a maladaptive coping strategy rather than a positive strategy because I overexercised. Yeah, you know, I was very manic. Yeah, it was a, a way to try to outrun and escape things. So, but but for now, for me, moderate, regular, moderate, and enjoyable exercise is the key to everything. Um, if I don't, if I don't train, I can feel my mood start to slip. So, so I always do do something every day, and I think it's because when, when you're exercising, you're burning off all those stress chemicals out of your system, all the adrenaline, and cortisol. You're getting rid of them. You're burning them off. So it is the number one best way to to get stress at a manageable level. But also even learning strategies like um, practicing gratitude and always trying to find positives in in life. Because I mean. We have, the, I mean, the world is such a negative place now. We're getting bombed with so much negative media, um, social in social media and, and mainstream media. It's hard to get a, a positive view on the world. So learning little strategies like that, practicing gratitude, they're all things that I, and, and, and also I, I, know, I know this will resonate with you, is um, filling your emotional bucket up by doing something that really is meaningful to you, giving back through either volunteer work or some other initiative such an important thing too I know, I know you did a lot through covid and it's just one of those things where um sometimes we're we're so busy with our working life we don't think about yeah. maybe what is it really is there something else i could probably be doing that's really going to because I'm, I'm my emotional bucket i'm emptying it all the time is there something i can do to fill that back up and i don't know it's one of those things i, I learned the hard way but one of the biggest things in my recovery was going out yeah. and doing a couple of years working for the Black Dog Institute, traveling the country and talking to school kids and, and sharing Very some mental health education with them. And and my interactions with those kids over those couple of years, thousands yeah. of them, really, really, it was just so beautiful. It was, and, and, and just doing that work really helped me understand the healing powers yeah. of giving back and, and what it can do for you emotionally. Um, so I think the key is just to have some really good tools, ones that fit you, um, that you know are really good for, for managing stress. And I, I guess you, you know okay. if, if you if you can keep a list of what your stress right. warning signs are, and you just ticked a few off there, some of the yeah. main ones where you start getting snappy and short fuse, yeah. uh, startle response, if you start getting annoyed every time someone asks you to do something else, all those sort of things. That, um, and your sleep, obviously, if your sleep starts to... To, to fall apart um that's that's they're the warning signs where you just go right okay i'm taking all my stress responses now yeah. 
what are all the things I've got in my life that I can draw upon to actually get that back under control. And so a well-being game plan is, is really important. Yeah. The, you're talking about your, you know, that's for yourself, right? Trying to make, trying to awareness, maybe writing some key things down. You know, if you've got a phone, you know, maybe just grab a notes thing and just go, you put stuff in there and maybe just add ticks every time something keeps showing up and then you might be going, oh, that's showing up a lot right now. Um, I need to deal with that. But from a colleague or a, a life partner or, um, you know, or a mentor, etc. what are some key things that we can be observant of? And but well, I mean, obviously they're probably similar to what you're seeing, but what should we be looking for? But then also how do we approach it with someone that you kind of feel, look, hey, they may be struggling here. They might need some help. How do we approach that? Yeah, look, it's, um, I, I teach mental health first aid courses. It's basically two days of training doing exactly that and, and it's um look i guess the basics are not always is it going to be some sort of big jump out of the box sign or symptom that's going to hit you in the face and say wow geez craig's really doing it tough he just like ticked that box i learned about burnout or yeah. sometimes it's just even a little far more subtle things and, I, and and the way i describe it to people is um when you start noticing things about the person that you're interacting with it, that are just a bit out out of character yeah. for them they don't have to always be some sort of big neon light sign or symptom. It could be just something really subtle. Then you start like sitting back and taking a bit of notice and might maybe join the dots between some other things as well. And um, I mean, some key ones will people be talking about, I'm sleeping poorly, I'm not going too well, I'm really tired, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they could be really obvious, but sometimes it's just little things. But if you if you are worried about someone, it's important not to ignore your, your, your concerns and I, I guess that the, the, the five-minute sort of rundown of what to do is, number one, is, is a plan, a conversation with that person if, if you can. Pick a time and a place that's really suitable where you're both going to be comfortable, where you can maintain confidentiality, privacy. That's important. Um, and then outline the reasons why you're worried. I'd say to Craig, mate, I am worried about you at the moment and I'm worried because, and you dot point all off the things that you've, you've noticed that have given you that, that concern. Then it's a then it's a time for you to sit back, and and to and to open your ears and to listen to what they've got to say, and and non-judgmentally as well. Listen to what how they're feeling about the whole situation, and and then the next step is encourage action. Whether that might be you know um, putting some things in place to, to um, self self care type things, or whether it means going to a professional, going to the GP or a psychologist, uh, and getting some professional help for it. You know, at the end of the day, it's, so for some people, it, it can be really, you can only lead a horse to water and it can be really frustrating yeah. when you know someone's really struggling, but they can't yeah. see it. So, I mean, there's lots of tools out there you can get around with that too. The Black Dog Institute's got a great tool called the online clinic and it's like a self-screening thing that you can do. It's like a test, self-test. You go through and answer questions about your life in certain timeframes just with clicks on a on multiple choice type. And it gives you a score at the end of it. It's only 10, 15 minute exercise. And, and that can be a really good one for helping people to understand whether what they're going through may be a little bit more serious than what they've given credit for. So yeah. so that's for anxiety and depression mainly. But look, at the end of the, the end day, of the day if, if people don't, um, even if they do accept they've got a problem and they don't want to go and get that professional help, you can't really force them to unless they're you know, critically suicidal and you think <laughs> that, that their life is in danger. But other than that, it's basically then it's just a, 
taking the time to check in on them from time to time, um, letting them know that they're sometimes people will go away after having that initial conversation and maybe give a little bit more thought, maybe do a bit of their own research and, and come to some awareness down the track. You've had a you know 25-year career in the police force. You're now forging a great career in kind of the preventative and even, I suppose, rehabilitative components of mental well-being and mental health. For you, what what's next for you over the next, you know, for the rest of your kind of working career? What do you kind of see? And, and when you look back, maybe once you have retired, I mean, if that's something you ever want to do, <laughs> um, what for you would you like to look back on your life and go, hey, you know, this is, I'm really proud I made an impact in this area? Well, you know, talking about gratitude, as, as much as I, I didn't want to see my police career end, um, the fact it did, and it's given me, even though you know, what I went through was was, was so, so tough, um, it's given me an opportunity for another career now, yeah. which is, yeah, just as fulfilling, if not more, than what the, the one I had before. So, I feel very blessed that I've had that opportunity. And yeah. out, out of, yeah. I, I think for me, yeah. I, I don't think it'd be one thing that I'd look back, back. and be more proud of than, than the other. I think it's a, a, it's a um, cumulative thing. It's, it's something I, the whole, the way I've always probably the easiest way to say it is the easiest. The, the way I've always looked at my life is that. I've done some stupid things in my life and, and, and yeah. some things that made some big mistakes and uh, in my personal and professional life. Um, but I think if, if I get to the end of my life and I can look back and say, well, mate, you did way more, um, way more good things than bad things in your life, that, that's a win for me. And where, where I go from here, I, I don't know. And it's, and it's mainly because I know some people like to have, you know, five-year, ten-year plans. But my life has, has has hit so many different hurdles and roadblocks at different times, and I've just and there's been so many divergence that I just sort of strapped in. I'm just going for the ride now. It was yeah. so you know as much as I want to build my business and and keep on going with it, I'm also very mindful to keep it um, keep my feet on the ground, not to get too carried away myself. I know I, I was mentioning to you before I've got a second book that I'm working on now yeah. as a mental health resource. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether I want to get into writing full time or or, or or keep on doing the work I'm doing with mental health. But it's one of this, the job I'm doing now is it's because I'm running my own business. It's I, I can sort of help with some degree. I can dictate the speed and, and the amount of work that I'm taking on. I've, I've just got to be aware that it comes down to that awareness and not taking on too much. But I could keep on doing this forever, like in all honesty. So. We'll, we'll just see where it goes, Craig. I don't know. Life's awesome. That's one of the best things I, I love about it is that you just don't know what's around the corner. Yeah, and for those who haven't read Craig's book, The Copy of Failed to Earth, I uh, recommend that you go out to all good bookstores and grab a copy of that and keep an eye out for a future book. Um, you can see right now that, you know, sometimes the adrenaline, the the intensity, the the chase for something takes us off the earth so to speak you know it lifts us up and we need to be grounded and it's great to hear that you're very grounded right now that you're giving back you're making a difference and you're just quite happy as you say going along for the ride rather than trying to create the ride so to speak and you know some we have those phases in our life and we need to kind of decide what point Uh, i still remember a six month kind of 
early retirement or midlife retirement I had a few years back and you know the the positive difference that had on me at that moment was so so crucial and uh, so I think we do need to we need to be very proactive in the way that we look at our life but also be very grounded and enjoy what was going on at that same time so yeah it's awesome we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time what can i say to that doesn't matter how what what interviews you do someone will come out with a question like that or just and it's very rare that i'm lost for words and i'm not going to say i publish a book for the first time because everyone knows that oh god i'm going to think of something better um i well i bought a boat at the start of COVID, and and i'd never i never it's it's an old cabin cruiser it's been broken down for nearly the whole time i've had it actually but um but but actually jumping out of my i like, I like challenging myself jumping out of my comfort zone and, and jumping into this thing and learning the ropes of uh sea life on a on a boat was was probably a that i've never done that before so that was pretty cool um my partners tried to talk me into doing parachuting there's no chance that's ever going to happen i'm too scared of heights but i don't know I, I, what have i done lately that's the first thing i've mate i, I don't know i've got you've got me the boat's How a good you- one I like the boat. Is, is that all right? You've had a conversation with me today. That's the first time you've done yeah, that. Yeah, well, that's, that is true too. <laughs> uh, what is the one question that you would love to solve? Uh, you know, I, I would love... Uh, the one question I'd love to solve is how we get people back together again. Mm. Honestly, there is so much division now and I don't know where it's going to go. I you know, with particularly politics and beliefs, and and that's it's just so, this massive divergence now. And I I would love, I would love to know how we get get that back to the center and 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 get people back on talking to each other again rather than shouting yeah. at each other. That's probably the one thing that really upsets me about the world now is that there's it, 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 people have got their own opinions, and 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 but now they want to yell them rather than yeah. discuss them. And I would I would love to bring that back somehow. Yeah, beautiful. I think we've made strides in certain areas um, of communicating and being more vulnerable. But then we have, as you say, sometimes you just look at it and go, I, I, maybe we've, we're going completely opposite way in certain yeah, aspects definitely. of life. Yeah. For you, what is an inspiring great leader? And who is a great example of this for you? Look, I've, I've had the pleasure of having, having a few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would probably use my pop in in that role. Yeah, so so the, you know I had lead, great leaders in the police force, but 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 in, as far as life goes, my my pop was probably the, the most inspirational. Um, he, he was very successful in, in his professional life, obviously in, in industry. Um, but he sort of set the bar for me when it came to true manhood. And and when I'm talking about that, you know, there's a lot of people talk about masculinity, and I've heard the terms toxic masculinity and that sort of stuff bandied around. But being a true man, like he was, um, he he made it very hard to to reach his standard. Like he he was very family orientated. He had such integrity. He was very calm all the time. But he did so much for other people. Um, 
I guess yeah. he was probably, as far as life goes, it would be him. But I had, I, um, I had also one of the guys I'm working with the leadership stuff now. He was the guy who 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 really was the, the reason why I joined the police force. And he's always be, he was he retired as a detective chief inspector. Um, he was someone who I always looked up to, uh, mainly because of yeah. the fact that he was um, he was also had high integrity, but he was uh, he was very smart. And he was always um, ambitious, and he was he was he was all, always doing some amazing work in the police force. And I guess I always wanted to be like him as as a cop as well in that professional role. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, you've got some remarkable insights, um, some great experiences and exposures to life that you are sharing with people, and you have some real um, easy and easy to understand and easy to apply ways of approaching mental health not that it's an easy thing to tackle but there you're, you're sharing lots of great insights here how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you so i've got a website mentality plus um i don't even know what the website address is i'm not very tech savvy but it's up there you put mentality plus in and it'll it'll come up as a as, a, as the website there's some programs that are, are listed on there. You can get me through emails, Craig at mentalityplus.com.au. Um, so, and, and the Black Dog Institute, you can get in touch with me through them as well and, and other organizations. But um, yeah, that's yeah. probably the, the, the main way through my email and my website. On my, on my website, there's there's actually a contact form on there as well. But um, yeah, if anyone needs any mental health work in their, in their workplace, wellbeing stuff, Speaking at conferences, anything like that, yeah, to sing out. I'd love to get in contact. Beautiful. And the book's on sale. I mean, you can get that all over Australia. You can get it internationally on, on Amazon and Booktopia yeah. um, and other online forums. Big W, yeah. Target, all the big bookshops yeah. have got it. Um, get it at the airport, sitting there waiting for something to do while you're waiting for a delayed flight. Pop into the bookshop at the airport and grab it. Yeah, lovely. All right, we'll, we'll pop those links. Not, not probably all the bookstores in the airports, but we'll put the... <laughs> the links for people to connect with you on the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Craig. I uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights and, and your vulnerability into uh, the, the, I suppose the amazing things that you got to do in the career in the police force, uh, but also those challenges you face and the hurdles you had to try and overcome and, and, you know, some barriers that kind of came into place that you probably weren't expecting at different times in your life and be able to help us, understand what are the tools to try and prevent those situations from happening but also to be able to respond when things don't quite go our way when we haven't quite seen the signs pop up or maybe we've seen them but don't know how to deal with them or, or I've kind of gone you know what i'll be right I've, I've managed life so far um really really helpful and you know you, you've ex been through an extraordinary career and a great service to the community uh, in both the police force, but even more now, you know, and dealing with those, the things that keep people being humans that allow us to live a healthy life. Um, and when things don't quite go right, and for anyone out there who thinks the world is going to always be amazing, things will challenge you. And so for the work that you're doing in there from kids right through to your seasoned leaders and professionals, Thank you very much on behalf of everyone around Australia and, and, and those that learn from you around the world. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I look forward to reading the new book next year. So good luck writing that. Can't wait to see it. 
Um, but yeah, thank you for your time today. It's been been a, a great conversation. Uh, it's very kind, Craig. Thanks for having me on, mate. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag Inspiring Great Leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong. <laughs>